0: This is the Hockey News Fantasy Podcast of Matt Larkin.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hockey News Fantasy Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here to take your questions, give you some tips, Little update on my own team. I feel I feel like I should do this every week because if my team's struggling, I have to be upfront. You know, if I'm giving you advice, I have to tell you how I'm doing. My team's doing a little better right now. I'm in a playoff spot. My my team's getting healthier. Ilya Samsonov is back, so I'm hanging in there. I'm in the hunt. Trade deadline is approaching, so hopefully that means my advice is good. And uh, let's start with pickups of the week. Okay, we're gonna do shallow leagues first. Vladimir Tarasenko, available in 25% of leagues. It's a guy that I think people have just sort of forgotten about. Obviously, he had his third surgery on the the same shoulder. So, obviously, it's a little bit scary for his career trajectory. At the same time, the upside is too great for him to be available in 25% of leagues. If you're a team that is in a really comfortable playoff spot. You obviously have to stash him. If you're a team that's struggling and needs a home run swing, I think there's motivation to add him as well because we know he's very close to returning. It could be any game now. Yes, it's possible. There's going to be some rust, but you still have to take that shot for a guy of Tara caliber of his level of talent. He's going to help you in goals, shots, power play points. So he's a must add in that, that crazy piece of the pie, 25% where he's available. Let's do a medium league pickup. Probably the hottest player in the NHL right now, Drake Batherson. He's got uh, eight goals, uh, I believe, in his last 12 games. No, eight goals and, and 12 points in his last nine games. That's what it is. Absolutely on fire. And what I like about what you're getting from Bathurst in a fantasy context is he's stuffing this the stat sheet because he's a big guy. He's physical. He's got 41 hits already as well. So he's averaging more than a hit per game. Very, very helpful. Multi-category monster. And, you know, if you look at the, the shooting percentage, 16.1, he was around 16 as a rookie as well. So I don't look at that number and think, wow, it's a major fluke, especially when the sample size is pretty small. Usually when you have a guy You know, scoring on 20% of his shots, that's when it stands out and you start to wonder. But I don't know if that shooting percentage is unlucky for Drake Batherson. And if you look at his profile in the AHL, this is a guy who had 116 points in 103 games at the AHL level. Really made it look easy. I've said that before. And even at the World Juniors, he had seven goals in seven games. Everywhere he goes, you know, Major Junior as well, he's a scorer. So I don't think he's a fluke. Obviously, he's not going to score at the rate of an Austin Matthews, but this could be an actual rival of Drake Batherson as a legitimate fantasy force. We know the players around him in Ottawa are getting better and better and injecting that lineup with Josh Norris, Tim Stutzler. We're seeing a a real rise to fantasy prominence among the Ottawa Senators, and the team itself is just playing better right now. I think it's got the – I saw a stat. It was you know in the last month or so or several weeks' second-best record in the division after the Leafs, which is pretty crazy. Uh, Let's look at a deep league pickup. This is a very deep league pickup. He's barely on the radar. He's available in 95% of leagues. I haven't even picked him up in my own league yet, but I'm looking at him. So hopefully my, my rivals aren't listening to this, but Oliver Wallstrom, he's 95% available. The needle's just starting to move there. We know there's pedigree. He was picked 11th overall in 2018 US NTDP. He was a prolific goal scorer. And we're seeing a little blip in his production right now in his last five games, he's got three goals, six points, He's doing a lot of damage on the power play. And that's something that I think the Islanders need. It's an area where he could be a specialist. And, you know, I'm saying this is a deep league pickup because it's too early to really pounce in in smaller leagues on Wallstrom. He's only playing 10 minutes, 51 seconds a night. He's playing on the third line, second power play unit. So we can't really trust the usage yet in terms of sustained production, but he's on my radar because we know the abilities there. And I think there's room for him to climb up that depth chart. So I think it's, it's definitely worth keep an eye on him. And if you're in a really deep league, then you should add him as well on spec. Now it's the WTF pickup of the week. It's Thomas Shabbat. He's available in 15% of leagues. I don't understand this. He's someone who should be universally owned, even the shallowest of leagues, because he absolutely fills the stat sheet. I was looking at his projected points. I was projecting them out to an 82-game pace for this defenseman. 56 points, 89 penalty minutes, 212 shots, 101 hits, 116 blocks. Thomas Shabbat is doing everything. We know he's always a candidate to lead the league in minutes played. He's usually right at the top. So the volume stats are excellent for him. And he's someone, you know, I don't care how shallow your league is. He's probably a borderline top 10 defenseman in fantasy right now. So he should be owned in every single league. Let's do a tip of the week. Okay, this one, <laughs> this is one I wrote about it in our magazine. And I feel shady when I talk about it. I hope that my other league mates aren't reading this because it makes it look like I'm I'm just a slimy person. But my tip of the week is get phone numbers. And what I mean is, If you look at every league, there's often a a collection of GMs who are considered inactive. They're sort of Luddites. They don't log in very often. They're really hard to trade with. A lot of other people say, oh, I've given up trading with so-and-so. But what often happens with these types of GMs, I think the common correlation is they tend to be the older managers in, in the league who just aren't as savvy with using the phone, using the app, knowing how to log into the chat. I remember in one of my leagues, I had a guy, he said to me, oh, the message board is really dead. It's been quiet for three years. And I said, dude the chat he's like what do you mean chat I was like you've missed three years of the chat is that why you haven't been posting messages he didn't know the chat existed he didn't know how to log in So what you do with these types of GMs, get their phone numbers. I'm a proponent of getting every phone number of every manager in your league, and you can get that rapport going. And then you can become the person in your league, the only person that can get through to these, these sort of stubborn, these GMs with stubborn reputations. You can make trades with these people because you can actually build a relationship. You can talk back and forth. You can have proper access. And I like doing this with everybody in my league, having a private thread text thread. And honestly, just for the friendship, you talk about hockey, it's, it's genuine. I don't want to, I want to make it clear, I'm not I'm not pretending to to befriend these people in my leagues, but I'm just saying it is a benefit that often I find in my leagues I'm I'm considered the person, you know, people are saying, How did you make a trade with so and so? And I say, Well, I just, you know, I've been texting them, we've been chatting for months, so we have a rapport, and it's easy to communicate and set up a trade, especially come trade deadline when maybe if you're in a really active league, there's lots of messages and offers going back and forth. It's helpful to have that extra line of, of communication. So get phone numbers. In in one of my leagues, we even have a thread where everybody in the league posts their number and and we all share each other's phone numbers. And that way you have access if you're trying to start a bidding war for a player or or make an offer for a player you know is available. So just do the phone number thing. Uh, Mr. Steven, Mr. Producer Steven, I, I think we are ready for some questions. We got a bunch of good ones this week. So the virtual line is open. I'm ready to answer some questions now.
0: That is a very good idea on for your tip of the week. Uh for my my league, we just have a Facebook chat and we kind of just do a lot of that and just kind of go from there. So uh we, we're we're too uh, young for those uh, phone numbers. Remember when people used to call each other and stuff days. All right, let's start talking about the questions. So LGR001119, a very catchy username asks. Cal Peterson and Chris Dreider have been great. Do you see any long term fantasy value in them or are they just having hot runs and that's it?
1: Yeah, I think they're definitely both hot. Uh, I, I see more value in one than the other. Um, it's hard because goalies, you never know. You know, you have guys emerge out of nowhere. Jordan Bennington a couple of years ago, Kevin Lankin in this year. So anytime a goalie gets off to a hot run or hot start, you have to pay attention because there's always potential for a new star to emerge. It's the nature of the position. It's just like running back in football, as Ryan Kennedy said on our main podcast this week. Um, I'm more intrigued by Cal Peterson than I am by Chris Dreger because um, – Peterson has a bit of that prospect pedigree. We also know if you look at, I really am a proponent of looking at, you know, team's cap structure, what what their long-term implications of the franchise are. We know that Jonathan Quick, he's nearing the end of his contract. I think it's only one year left, if I'm not mistaken. So there's reason to find out what they have in Peterson. We're already seeing an even split of starts between the two. He's younger. The Kings are suddenly a team on the rise, so especially in the Keeper League. It's like Cal Peterson could be the goalie of the future on a team that in another year or two is going to be really good. So I think there's actually a lot of potential there. And as for Chris Treger, you know, you look at – you know, his, his numbers are really good. Peterson and Dreger, in terms of their analytical numbers, they're both right near the top of the league with Vasilevsky, Lankin, and the guys having great years. But I say this all the time, money talks, the Florida Panthers. It's only, you know, year two of Bobrovsky's deal. He's making $10 million a year. That's not going to be a contract. You can move easily. He's got five years left. So they have to keep giving him chances. You also have Spencer Knight, the best goaltending prospect on the planet, still coming up in the system. Eventually who could squeeze on the other end, Chris Dreger. So, and also Dredger is a pending UFA so we don't even know where he's going to end up long term he could be someone that if the you know Panthers decide that they want to get something for him they know they're not going to be able to keep him. maybe they make a trade at the deadline he goes to a team where he could be the backup probably not because the Panthers are good but you just never know his future is pretty unclear because of the fact he doesn't have a contract right now for next year so I like both I would say Dreger is a guy you if you're looking for short-term help maybe you have an injury to one of your you know your main goalie you can ride him but I think Cal Peterson has significant long-term potential
0: yeah, Peterson is a guy that I think a couple of years ago was tabbed pretty quickly as someone who was going to be the future starting goalie for the LA Kings, and whether that's true and he stays in LA or if he gets moved somewhere else, which I don't think will happen, I do fully believe in that. So, um, very good points there. Great question from Sammy Snickles. I love that name. Sammy sounds like a like a,
1: a a mob henchman that will like, that, you know, carries a switchblade. No, how you doing, Sammy Snickles? No, he's he's good with a knife.
0: I, I was thinking kind of like a sitcom character where like they mention that person's name, but they never actually show up on the show. It's just like, oh, yeah, Sammy Snickles. Ha ha ha. Yeah. Anyway, great name. Not sure if it's real or not, but we'll see. Um, is there a certain position you like to have an abundance of extra bench players? I like having lots of a dual wingers. That's something I like having wingers that could do specifically like center and left wing. That's really nice. Or just having a lot of goalies, too. For sure. Yeah, I was going to say, like, goalies is the easy answer. I don't know if it's cheating to say that. But
1: if you're in the league with a big bench spot, and you don't have any, you know, league restrictions on how many goalies you can start, then yes, you know, if your league starts two goalies, keep five goalies and just churn them, rotate them. It depends. And my league you wouldn't be allowed to do that because we have rules on like, game stacking because we we consider it kind of cheap. But if, you're, if your league doesn't have those kind of restrictions, then load up on goalies, monopolize the goalies. I, I would do that in your draft, right? Draft five goalies and just keep churning them so you have a couple goalies playing every night. Uh, but I don't know if that's the spirit of the question. So I'll say um, I, I do like the, the dual position players. So center and wing, like you said, Steven, uh, I, I find left wing tends to be scarcer than right wing there are more players that qualify at right wing than left wing for whatever reason. I feel like that's always been the case. So I think a center slash left wing uh, player is probably the most useful you can have in terms of versatility stashes. I don't think um, like in Yahoo formats, I don't, I don't have a memory of seeing players that qualify at center and left and right. Usually it's like center and one of the wings. Uh, but I don't, I don't think I've seen a triple qualifier, but if that was the case,
0: then he would be extremely valuable. All right. Jane Turingo asks, is there one thing that overlooked that you think, or one thing in particular that you think fantasy owners overlook could be anything.
1: Yes. And I think it's, it's very much to my advantage. Um, This tip, admittedly, it applies to head to head leagues specifically. It doesn't apply to rural leagues, but I think in head to head leagues, people do not play their opponents. They don't play the matchup. And you know, you have, you build your team that you think is solid and balanced. That's great. But if you just set it and forget it, you could lose your match because of it. What you have to do is, Check the categories, check the stats in your head-to-head game every night, follow, look at what category you're trailing in. Then you might be able to pick up a player that's really strong in that category. And you could flip that category and end up winning your game. It's especially important in the playoffs. And I've done this for years and I, I find it actually is the difference between winning and losing. I think I've actually won some leagues mainly in baseball with this strategy, but just by really paying attention to the categories and understanding it. it's a matchup. It's not just about the players. You have to play your opponent, see what categories your opponent's strong in. And if you have a team that's you know really good in hits and you're dominating the hits category and you're going into the Sunday last day of your matchup, well, maybe you can drop one of your guys that's high on hits and pick up someone who shoots the puck a lot because you're, down by two shots, and you can flip that category. It could be the difference between winning and losing. So I think that not enough people, at least in my experience, pay attention to that element of a matchup. And they, they you have to look at all the different roto categories. Admittedly, the strategy is different when it comes to roto leagues, which I think are boring. I do not like roto leagues. I don't play any roto leagues anymore. It's a lot more fun to have the chess match against your opponent, in my opinion.
0: I do agree on that one. Nicholas Sampson asked, what do I do with Carey Price? And I just want to preface this by saying, as I pointed out on Twitter, first off, I don't know what it is, but he seems to not play as well when he's got his red goalie pads. That's been a history of him whenever he's had his red goalie pads. Number two, his surface stats aren't great, but his advanced stats are not that bad.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know, I don't think his advanced stats are that great, though. I was looking at them as well, and you know, this is going into last night, so I don't, I haven't updated from last night because I was writing this down. But he was twentieth. There were twenty-nine goalies that had played at least five hundred minutes, five-on-five. He was twentieth in goal saved above average per sixty. So he's grading out near the bottom of the pack. And the weirdest thing, this happened last year too. Price is the second lowest expected goals against per 60. So the Habs have been a good defensive team. They were last year. They were this year. And this is a bizarre trend. I've been writing about this a lot. I wrote about it for our magazine recently, where you just are getting some goalies who are, for whatever reason, they play better with more work. And sometimes you have goalies that they don't get into that rhythm. And it seems like Price is struggling when he's not as busy. He's not facing as many shots. And he it's like he doesn't get into rhythm. The weird thing is, you know, this question came in yesterday because so I was looking at it. But the answer has already changed because Montreal fired goaltending coach Stefan Waite. They've brought in Sean Burke, who has been kind of a goalie whisperer. He's helped guys just change their careers. And it's a really fascinating marriage because if you look at the guys Sean Burke has worked with, you know, guys like Devin Dubnik and helping them turn around their career. A piece of clay like Carey Price. like uh, Burke has never had a pupil like this before. So it'll be interesting to see if he changes the way Price plays. We know that the Burke coaching tree and Benoit Lair those guys, they like to have their goalies play deep in the net, especially really big goalies. And Carey Price is big. He's got long limbs. So maybe you're going to see a Carey Price that plays really deep in the net, deeper than ever. And we'll see a turnaround. I wouldn't bet against it. It's not like Price is 35 years old, right? He's not that old yet. He still has time. Um, but in terms of what to do with him in fantasy, You know, I'm still worried about him and maybe Sean Burke's going to help him, but it it, it might take a while. So I'm not saying you should completely give up on price because the talent is too great and the situation, you know, he's still going to play even if Jake Allen is is stealing starts. But I think you have to at least look at the name brand and see if you can get 90 cents on the dollar. I wouldn't go lower than 85 because then it's just, you know, if you trade him for someone who's just a middling starter, then a month from now, Price is lighting it up or or lights out, I should say, then you'll be kicking yourself. But if you get someone, like if someone offers you, you know, a hot starter, maybe like Kevin Lankin or something for for Price, I think you have to consider it because this is not a one-year trend. Price was like this last year too, where you had the good team in front of him and he just wasn't stopping the puck as much as he used to. So I would consider using that big, you know, there's still – someone's going to get that dopamine rush when they look in their email inbox and they see they've been offered a trade carry price. Ooh, carry price. I still think he has that cachet. He might not for long. So I would consider selling him off 90 cents on the dollar, but otherwise I'd, I'd probably hold on to him.
0: All right. This next question is uh, actually an interesting story. Um, this is my roommate who asked this cool. As based off of a trade that I gave him a trade request. I made it for him. Oh, man, Stephen. This is uh, this has major implications here. Conflict so of interest. So this is from David Hartford, who asked, I have Patrick Kane. I received a trade offer for Nathan McKinnon. That was my McKinnon. Is this something I should consider? Kane has been better, but McKinnon brings a ton, of, ton to the table. And, of course, his stats are lower, partly because Colorado has played fewer games. I tried to sell him the fact that McKinnon is one of the best players in the world right now, but just – Stats wise, it was not comparable at the time of the trade. So and did the trade happen? No, he did not accept it. So it was a trade and request he only. Still? He but okay. it could still happen he, depending on your it? answer. based off your he, he did reject it, but based off of your answer, that could change. Okay. So so uh
1: okay, and his name is David. David. And David, David has Patrick Kane, and you offered him Nathan McKinnon. Correct. Right. right. So so David, I would probably take this trade, like you said in the question. Um you know, Colorado does have more games left. And in this in this COVID season, having that extra volume, everything helps. And they're so close. If you look at their statistical profile, it's actually quite similar. Um, they both get tons of shots, tons of points. Neither player is really physical, doesn't rack up things like hits, penalty minutes. So their stat profile is actually, you, don't, you think of Nathan McKinnon as the more dominant player, but in terms of what they bring to the table, it's pretty similar. That said, just the age difference, you know there's a lot more upside left than McKinnon. Kane is still producing remarkably well as he's, as he's crossed the threshold of 30, but McKinnon's still got that ability to go supernova and, you know, put up 20 points in a stretch of 10 games Uh, and he's still having a good year. Last I checked, he had, you know, 21 points in 16 games, I believe something like that. So if it's that close and you're breaking a tie, I just think McKinnon could, could just take you on his back and bring you to a fantasy championship. I think Kane can as well, but you could argue maybe Kane's best production has, has already happened and maybe he'll be just, point per game really good player the rest of the way but he's had a huge supernova stretch and i still think kane you know he's a top 10 player in fantasy right now absolutely maybe he's going to be top five this year but balance of the season i think you got
0: to go mckinnon all right well that could work in my favor in the in the trade talk again this next question comes from ryan who uh, says in a keeper league i can keep two defense my other d's are carlson uh john carlson uh tyson barry tory krug gilchuk Anderson stats are goals, assists, penalty minutes, power play goals. You, you know the stats. He got offered Ekblad and a third rounder for Krug and a sixth rounder. I'd rather keep Krug and trade Barry. No takers on B. What would you do?
1: Yeah. So I was a bit confused, about the wording of this question took me a while to figure it out because I was thinking, okay, you want to keep Tory Krug over Barry, but then, or, or, or for over Eckblad, then what does Barry have to do with this? But I think what you're saying is you'd rather have Barry in the trade than Tory Krug, which I understand because yes. in Keeper League, Tyson Barry's having a great year, but he's a pending UFA. So we don't know where he's going to be next year. Regardless, if you can't get a taker for Barry, I would do this trade if I were you. So you're getting the third round pick and you're getting Eckblad. Ekblad is, I think, four and a half years younger than Tori Krug. He showed major signs of a breakout if you looked at his analytics, especially his primary assists. I think he was first in all defensemen last year. And I've said this before, he reached that age this he's the same age when Victor Hedman broke out and you see it commonly the big guys Chris Pronger you know guys that were really high draft picks and they they bloom a little bit late they're still good but you know they seem like they're slightly short of expectations and then all of a sudden they they bloom in their their sort of early to mid-20s and then they start going on this hall of fame trajectory this is exactly what we've seen with Victor Hedman I think you know when he was 22 it was like oh is the light going to turn on we haven't seen the offense yet now he's probably a hall of famer now, even if his career ended today. So I think Eckblad is on that trajectory, not saying he's going to be a hall of famer, not yet, but just that he's on the trajectory toward a breakout and Torrey Krug, I think he's reached his peak. He's not in quite as appealing of a situation in St. Louis. So I don't think it's a big surprise that his numbers are down a little bit and you're, you're gaining a, a draft picker. So I, I think you have to make this deal, even though you'd rather move Barry, regardless, if you can't move Barry, I'd still do this trade. I think it's a really good trade for you to take Eckblad
0: in the third, because I think Ekblad is actually worth more than Tory Krug right now. anyways. All right. This next question comes from what do I know? It's an interesting name. And I ask, what's up with Malkin? Is there still hope he turns around this year and starts playing at a point per game average? For whatever reason, he has looked lackadaisical That's a word. Lackadaisical, yeah. Lackadaisical at both ends of the ice. Yeah. It, it, well, at
1: least the good news is, I guess, with Sidney Crosby out, we maybe we're going to get the, the the annual uh Evgeny Malkin goes off when Crosby's out, which is really not a myth. It, it Statistically, it does happen. Last year, he was phenomenal. I think I even had him on my, on my heart trophy ballot. He was, and Crosby missed a significant chunk of the season, of course. Malkin was first among all NHLers in points for 60. His best season, his MVP year, 2011 12, at 50 goals, 100 plus points, that came with Crosby out when Crosby was really in his darkest place, place with the concussions. And I think it does tie into the lackadaisical thing. You know, Evgeny Malkin, I think, is one of the best players of his generation, absolute Hall of Famer. But the, the idea, you know, the body language thing, the fact that he sometimes plays when he wants to, that has kind of followed him around at times throughout his career. And, you know, if we look at the fact that Crosby's out, the, if Malkin is a guy that I think can respond to a spark and sort of feeling like he's needed and has to take the team on his back. that That's a thing when it comes to getting Malkin. It's tough right now because he is 34. So, you know, he's had this pattern of, you know, we know who Malkin is in fantasy. He's usually elite when he's in the lineup. Sometimes he battles injuries. The Penguins tend to rest him and he plays well without cross. But these are all sort of pillars of the Evgeny Malkin experience in fantasy. But when he's 34 years old, eventually decline is going to start to come in. So I think you have to worry this year a little more than you normally would. Uh, and the last I checked, he was like 150th in points per 60. So his actual production when he's on the ice has cratered. So it is a bit of a problem. Uh, I would still consider a buy low. And I have, this is someone, I say, this is someone who hasn't, I, I draft or I traded for him in my league, uh, I think the night of my draft um, just because, you know, he is 34, but he's only a year from, removed from being truly elite. Like last year, he legitimately, legitimately was playing in an MVP level. He just played in a smaller sample size of games, but he was that good so recently that I don't buy the fact that he's just falling off the map. It doesn't mean he's ever going to get to that level again, but I think he could easily catch fire and be a point per game player the rest of the year a top 30 player, let's say for the rest of the season. So he's someone I'd buy low. And I don't say this is not any, I, I say it with no real statistical evidence, because if you look at his rates, his statistical rates, they are down. So he's not, he's not played well. I just think that we know who he is. He's an all time great player and I'm not willing to quit on him yet. I think he can flick a switch And especially with Crosby out, that could be the spark that he needs to get him on track for the rest of the year. So I'm not trading him in my league. I've taken him off the trading block. And if you don't have him, I would try to make a lowball offer
0: for him. So I know just to back on the Carey Price thing, uh, it's been reported now that uh, Mark Bergevin said uh, that Stephen Waite was fired during the second period of last night's game. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. And Carey Price was not told until after the game. Wow. Interesting uh, to have a guy who works with you so closely fired while you're, you know, you're team is playing anyways robert decker asked do you have, see any hope of eric carlson bouncing back offensively this year or in the next few yeah it's it's funny this is the theme and i'm gonna even
1: post this as a blog the theme of this podcast is like fallen fantasy heroes we talked about carrie price genny malkin and now eric carlson who is the best fantasy defenseman of the past 25 years if you look at his body of work um but I, i'm not optimistic on eric carlson if we look at just just his situation right so first his health he's a very old 30. He's someone who literally had his ankle rebuilt and pieces of the bone taken out a few years ago. Hasn't been the same player since. Uh, And if you look at his advanced metrics, you know, when he first came to the Sharks, he was still actually playing at an elite level despite being hurt, but everything is tanked for him. He's not controlling the play and not pushing the play he he did before. There are are, are all the different, you know, shot metrics, play generating metrics. They're down to what they were in his rookie season. So it's basically, his worst he's ever played in terms of his productivity, the team around him is kind of crumbling. And ironically, it's almost like, I don't want to blame Carlson, but his contract crippled the Sharks to the point that they had to jettison a lot of bodies from their lineup. They're not a very deep team anymore. They have a poor farm system. So this this franchise is sinking, sinking, sinking. So the supporting cast around Carlson is not as good either, which is bad for his assist total. So looking at all those different things, he's going to be there for a long time. He has so many years left on his deal. If Carlson were traded in real life, to to, you know, if Carlson were traded to the Edmonton Oilers, I'd say, yes, Carlson's back. He's going to be a fantasy force. It'll work. But where he is right now, he's not going anywhere for a long time, especially in a flat cap world. You can't move that contract to anyone. But that much term left and that much money, and half million, I believe, he's not going anywhere. And he's in a team that's in a bad situation. His body's breaking down on him. So I look at every element of the Carlson situation for fantasy, and I don't like anything that I see. It's too bad. I've always been a huge Carlson apologist. I think he should have four Norris trophies, not two. I think he's been robbed twice. But uh, his time as an elite fantasy defenseman, I think, is legitimately over.
0: It's kind of sad to see that. So this question comes from the grass is always greener. A, a new favorite of uh, all of our podcasts. He's very active on the questions and they ask in a league with trade veto. if a horribly one-sided trade pops up on the wire, but the person that's getting fleeced is the one that proposed the trade new and experienced and familiar with scoring. Do you still veto? It, it's a great question. And I know that the grass
1: is always greener. It got a question through to our main podcast, but I just really like this question. So I wanted to address it. So that's why, grass is getting a question in both podcasts this week. VIP, uh, this happens in my leagues all the time, where you have a new GM and they get fleeced horribly on a deal. People call for a veto or at least a reversal. We don't have an official veto in our league, but people get angry. This trade is lopsided. I, I, I'm not a big fan of, of vetoes or reversals. I think you do it as an absolute last resort, unless someone you know hit a button by accident. That's different. But if you start vetoing trades, that's sets, pres- sets a precedent. Then you get someone angry. You, you know, you have one one owner who's jilted by being vetoed and they say, okay, well, I'm going to remember this next time is another trade. I'm going to have my veto finger ready too." And you get a revenge situation. It's a terrible idea. The main thing you need to see when a trade happens that people are upset about is defending the trade from the fleeced party. If the person who won the trade, everyone's like, Oh, sweet deal. If they come in and say why well, the trade is great. Well, you can't, you, That obviously you can't, you got to take that with a grain of salt, but what you need to see is the fleeced party who sometimes it's often someone who's known as more of a deadbeat, GM or new or whatever. They have to come in and give a good explanation of why they like this trade for their team, even if it's a bad explanation. If they genuinely believe they helped their team, then the trade has got to stand and they can learn from the mistake if their team ends up sinking. The other thing too, and I say this all the time because I'm always at the center of controversy with trades in my league. People remember how they feel the moment a trade happens. They remember their emotion. They often forget to go back and see who actually won the trade so often the team that was considered fleeced ends up winning the trade. People just get fired up and they think they know based on you know the name brands of the players and it's often not the case. That's another reason to let trade stand if both parties are happy. Veto only is the last resort. I hate vetoing in leagues.
0: Well, like it, it, if someone is very obviously tanking to try to get the first round pick, do you do it? Uh again that's different.
1: You know we we've made some rules that you know you can only trade a certain number of picks. You don't get trades that are too lopsided, but the same thing. You know there's I'll use a fantasy football example. Someone made a trade a couple of years ago that I was like, this is awful. This team is tanking. They traded Aaron Rodgers and Kareem Hunt and, and Devonte Adams. And it was like, Oh, you're tanking for futures. And the guys, the guys they got, though so this guy lost the trade. He got Patrick Mahomes and Chris Godwin and people look back and like, Oh, never mind, story. He tanked and he got Mahomes. So that was, again, it's an example of people freaked out, including me when the trade happened And a year later, it was like, oh, never mind. Okay, I can see why you did that. So people have just got to chill the F out when it comes to reacting to trades, let things play out. Everyone involved typically is an adult,
0: and they can make their own decisions. And if they're happy with the trade, fair enough. All right, Ryan Cantor asks, is it time to sell high on Varlamov, or is he a legit top three goalie? Top three goalie, I think, is not a term I'd use to describe
1: Varlamov. He was the Vezina runner up I think, uh, maybe seven years ago, something like that. But uh, I think he's more of a top 10 goalie the way he's playing right now. He's got a great coaching tree with the Islanders, with Piero Greco and Mitch Korn overseeing it. We know that they work magic with their goaltenders. But uh, Semyon Varlamov, his his history is his body's broken down at times in the past. He's been relatively healthy the last few years, but he's someone who's prone to like soft tissue injuries. So teams... that that employ him now, they don't lean on him as hard. So you're not going to see Varlamov be a workhorse like Vasilevsky and play tons and tons of games. You're always going to see him seed starts to whoever his battery mate is. And this year, his battery mate happens to be an elite goaltending prospect who also happens to have back-to-back shutouts, Ilya Sorokin. The Islanders are grooming him to be their long-term number one, so he's not going away, and it's already been said this week uh, by Barry Trotz that Sorokin's going to play a little bit more going forward as well, so you're going to see something closer to a 50-50 split. So I'm not totally sold on Varlamov. I would sell high. I think he's still going to be a perfectly perfectly competent fantasy goalie, but he's going to hurt you in volume stats because he's going to play less going forward, and I think you should cash in that chip while he's at his peak value right now. All right, very
0: good answer. Uh, Rob asks Pavelski and Couture: Will the bubble burst?
1: Yeah, well, we already—I think it was the last podcast or the one before—we addressed Joe Pavelski, so I'll kind of skip that. I did say, you know, sell high on Joe Pavelski. With Logan Couture, um, you know, there's more reason to trust him because he's a lot younger than Pavelski; he's five, six years younger, uh, and he's capable of of being a good player for extended stretches. And his advanced metrics this year, are, this year, are really, really strong. He's playing at an elite level, um, but. Anytime someone asks me about a sell high, the first thing I do, the first thing you should do is go to their shooting percentage, go to their stat profile, look at the shooting percentage, look at the career shooting percentage, it will tell you every time if their puck luck is in their favor. And we look at Logan Couture, his career number is 12.8, his shooting percentage this year is 21.6, so we see it right there. He's playing over his head, more pucks are going in than normally going for him, so he's going to regress. I still think he can be a perfectly useful player. I actually traded for him in my league last week. He's useful. He's useful. But you have to understand what you're getting. He's not going to be you know, challenging for the Rocket Richard Trophy, that kind of thing. He's scoring at an unsustainably high rate of on, on his shots. That will come down. That number will come down.
0: All right. And I believe this is our last question. James Boyleau, who asks, who's an available tendy I should target? Need to replace Holpe? And yes, do that pretty quickly. <laughs> I, like, I, I like the term tendy.
1: I've been hearing it more. I enjoy it. Tendy, it's, it's a cute way to, uh, to uh, it's a cute I don't. title for a goalie. Tendy, I like it.
0: I don't. I don't. There's too many like you hear that, like junior hockey things or like yeah. the, the cliche, like cringy having uh, a rip button, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, all that
1: that's stuff. true. Fair, fair. Um, yeah, so I was thinking about that. Who's in the range that I'm guessing you're looking for? So I i, I put down Capo kakinen for you. So he's available in 49 of leagues, and again, gotta always look at the team situation. So you have Cam Talbot. Who's signed to a three-year deal, $3.67 million? If you subscribe to the idea that money talks, that's not that much money. There's not a massive commitment to Cam Talbot. It's not so locked in that someone couldn't steal his job. We know that Talbot was hurt and Kakanin came in. He played very well. And now it looks like he may have earned a 50-50 split of starts. And even things, you know, we look at the expansion draft coming up. You know, do you, do you consider? Leaving Talbot exposed if Kakanin plays really well between now and then, it's possible, right? So, I think the wild situation is fluid enough that there's room for Kakanin to come in and steal the job. He has a reasonable prospect pedigree, he wasn't an elite prospect, but he's been on our radar at hockey news. Like, we've known who he was for a good five years ever since he scored. Didn't he score? I think he scored two goals in one season, yes, as a goalie. He scored, I'm pretty sure, definitely one goal, but I'm pretty sure Kapo Kakanin had a multiple goal season. Hopefully, I'm not lying, I really need to look this up. But he definitely has at least one goal. He's he's a goalie. He's a goal scoring goalie. Long story short, we've been watching him for a while because he is a legitimate prospect. So I don't consider it a big fluke if he comes in and starts playing well at the NHL level. Maybe a bit of a late bloomer, but I think he might be legit. So that's someone with a bit of upside. You know, you're going to at least get a 50-50 split going forward on a team that's playing pretty well. And there's upside for him to play more than that if he keeps playing this well and maybe he takes the job
0: outright. All right, that's it for this week's questions. And we're going to go to the starting lineup. The starting lineup, the category was brought to me by Mr. Stephen Ellis, the
1: producer last week. I'm a big movie guy, as you might know. Uh, So this starting lineup is worst movies, worst movies I've ever seen. Least favorite movies of all time. Not in a particular order, but these are six terrible flicks. First one, Pearl Harbor. I was a big Michael Bay guy when I was a teenager, you know, impressionable. Bad Boys, The Rock, Armageddon. I was all in at that age when my voice was still cracking. Awesome. This movie's great. But uh, when Pearl Harbor came out, I think I was like in my last year of high school, I was really excited. I thought the trailers looked great. It was just terrible. It, it made it look like two people won World War II for the Americans. Just an absolute train wreck of a movie, horribly acted. Everything about it was, it was awful. So that's number one. Uh, next up. Star Wars, the rise of Skywalker. So obviously in the new trilogy era, people are divided. I'm a last Jedi guy. People hate the last Jedi or they love the last Jedi. I love the last Jedi because Ryan Johnson did something different. He was trying to subvert our expectations of Star Wars. Otherwise, why make, why just keep remaking movies which is what J.J. Abrams does. He just brings back the same old nostalgic beats. Ryan Johnson tried to do something different. And he challenged the audience with a different story, a different idea of who Luke Skywalker would be as an old person. And then what does J.J. Abrams do? He takes it back and he erases everything with a big broad brush, makes a ridiculous story where Palpatine is alive and it's right on the opening crawl. Just an absolute mess of a movie, terrible. I think you can make a case. It might even be the worst Star Wars movie, which is saying a lot because Attack of the Clones, pretty bad. Phantom Menace has some bad parts, some things I like, but Attack of the Clones is particularly terrible. I think Rise of Skywalker is worse because it just makes me so angry. It's just such a lazy and kind of sad. It's a sad effort because it's just placating angry fans who just want to see the same movie over and over and over and have, you know, old plot beats shoehorned back in. It was, I just think it was a pathetic movie. Uh, Next up is Crash, the worst best picture winner of all time. 2005, uh, just really heavy-handed approach to to trying to tell stories about racism. To me, it was like something you'd see in a drama class high school presentation. Terrible movie. Worst Best Picture winner, uh, Batman versus Superman is another one on my list. My God, Jesse Eisenberg—he was great in The Social Network. It was cringeworthy. I was like sliding down my seat trying to watch him play Lex Luthor and the Doomsday interpretation. Doomsday, an iconic character, the one who killed Superman in the comics, reduced to just a messy CGI blob. I'm not a fan of, of you know Zack Snyder some of his early stuff, but just the seat—he's C- so reliant on the dark lighting and CGI, and it just looks like a mess. It looks like video game cutscenes not a fan at all. Uh, Bucky Larson. So it's a movie with Nick Swartzen about him. It's a comedy about being a porn star. And I remember the night that I watched Bucky Larson, I just finished watching like a really intense, disturbing horror movie and I made it through it. And then I turned on Bucky Larson. And after 10 minutes of Bucky Larson, I was like, oh, I I can't watch this. And I turned that off. That's how bad Bucky Larson was. Just terrible. The last one, I don't know if it's even fair to do this because it's sort of celebrated for how bad it is, but I put the room Tommy Wiseau, it's like the most famously bad movie ever. It is terrible, but it's lovingly terrible because you watch it and you know you celebrate how awful it is. And obviously they've made it into another movie about the making of it, the disaster artist. Uh, but the room is still legendary for being awful. And I think you have to put it on any list of the worst movies. And that concludes it. I will be taking suggestions for the next, next starting lineup. I'll be taking more fantasy questions in the weeks to come. I'll be back in a couple weeks Good luck with your teams. A couple of weeks from now, we're going to be getting pretty close to fantasy trade deadlines. So start thinking about your tough roster decisions. Hopefully I can help you.